Welcome to Rejoicing with Bella, a series of podcasts exploring and celebrating female sexuality. I'm your host, Bella Heeson. I'm an actor, writer and theatre maker, and I'm currently developing a show called Rejoicing at Her Wondrous Vulva, The Young Woman Applauded Herself. Whilst making the show, I've realised that there is a huge need and a huge appetite for more open and nuanced conversations around female sexuality, and one play isn't big enough to contain all of the ideas I want to explore. So, I'm also doing this series of podcasts. Thank you for joining me. Today, my guest is Natalie Collins, who is a founding member of the Christian Feminist Network. And she and I met because she came to one of the work in progress performances of Rejoicing at Her Wondrous Vulva, the young woman applauded herself at Oval House a few weeks back. And Natalie approached me afterwards and said that she'd love to talk to me about Christianism and sex and shame and women. And I thought that sounded fascinating because as a pretty much a lifelong atheist, I only have a perspective on that from the outside. And so I was really keen to get a perspective from the inside, from an actual real life religious person. <laughs> so welcome, Natalie. Thank you. I'm glad to be a specimen of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Um, now, I read um, a really interesting blog that you wrote under your kind of moniker, God Loves Women, which is also where you exist on Twitter, Yeah. Um, if anyone wants to follow Natalie. And you were talking about the idea of um, premarital sex obviously being frowned upon uh, within Christian culture. You might put it yes. more strongly than that. <laughs> Um, and the consequences that that has. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I guess um, I am a lifelong Christian in that sense. I grew grew up in Christian culture, grew up with Christian parents, and for the vast majority of my life, I'm now 33, would would have always identified as a Christian. And and so grew up very much in what is broadly known as purity culture. So this idea that um, kind of that you betray Jesus if you have sex before marriage and that your kind of virginity becomes a very highly valued part of your life and um and so for me personally that was very problematic well I think it's I don't think it's just me personally I think it's quite problematic but from personal experience it was really problematic in terms of it made um it really ill-equipped me for being able to have healthy relationships or to recognize when something's not healthy because within Christian culture there's no framework for consent so you don't talk about it's like if you you know when you if you go to sort of Christian youth event and they have they invite people to come forward if they've sinned sexually like and if you want to like be you know kind of prayed for and overcome this sexual sin but there's no there's never any acknowledgement that somebody might have offended against you sexually so it's the presumption is that all sexual all sexual action is chosen and so that then makes so from a sexual violence point of view that's really 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 difficult and problematic and dangerous and so, so if you're the victim of sexual violence then have you sinned is well you it wouldn't of... that wouldn't be seen it just wouldn't there wouldn't be a framework where sexual violence is recognized so of course within christian within christianity there would be a recognition that sexual violence is wrong but when you kind of are doing it with a group of teenagers you wouldn't ever there wouldn't generally be a space to acknowledge that there'll be some young people there who've been subjected to sexual violence so the only framework you have as a young person and as a as a youth worker often is 
realise that um, that you've made sexual choices and you need to kind of, those sexual choices are sinful. So immediately you frame all sex as bad, all premarital sex as bad and all postmarital sex as good, which is, as you're probably aware, quite a problematic paradigm in that you can have really good premarital sex that isn't abusive, isn't dangerous, is is entirely consensual and, and you know profound and then you can have postmarital sex that's very violent and somebody is assaulting us and, and that kind of stuff and so having that framework is very problematic in lots of ways and so just to clarify what your perspective on it yeah. is even if the, there's a variety within the community um that idea that um well let's take first of all all premarital sex is wrong yeah. that's obviously what you were brought up with yeah. um and you still identify as a christian do you believe that to be true or do you in fact think that sometimes premarital sex is not morally wrong what's your take yeah, on that yeah so i think i guess what i so i have a 15 year old she was just 15 on sunday so i'm i guess it is a very sort of relevant thing like how how am i raising my 15 year old mm. would probably you know as the most and i think for me there's something about i guess that i see sex is different to other things you know so like there's something profound about about sexuality and sex and there's that's the reason why sexual violence is more harmful than other forms of violence because sex there's something special about sex um sex can you know in heterosexual relationships result in a baby being made so there is a potential for life being created out of this so i guess what my my own personal view now is much more that sex is precious and so should be valued in a way that means that you do it within a context where both those people are committed to to the potential of of that preciousness if that makes sense so I think marriage is one of the places where that that can be um can happen but I don't think marriage is the only place and my with my daughter and with my sons um the priority is not get them to (laughs) get them to marriage without sex it's about actually enable them to have a healthy sexuality and to ensure you know my my standard is I want all my children to only have sex that is consensual and that um brings them into greater liberation and positivity which actually is is a pretty difficult thing to achieve Mm. (laughs) with our current pornified culture so um so yeah so i don't think that the only way to have kind of uh, kind of morally okay sex is within marriage um but i do think that there are some safeguards that marriage can give that might you know that mean that hopefully once people are married there is a sense of actually we we're choosing to do something we've committed ourselves to something but i don't think it's in of itself a problem to have sex outside of marriage okay and i think i already know the answer to the second thing but um would you say that all sex within marriage is good morally (laughs) No, I mean you can just have just generally terrible marriage sex. You know, like it doesn't have to be like morally, <laughs> it just can be awful. So I think, um, I mean, my own personal experience, which is what has um, led me to having these conversations in lots of ways and kind of embracing feminism, is that when I was seventeen, I met my ex-husband, and he, um, I, I'd grown up in this culture that had two things to say about sex: make sure they're a Christian, and they're the opposite sex, obviously. Oh and yes, <laughs> taken as right. Yeah. Don't even like, yeah, they're the opposite sex that they're a Christian and um and and don't have sex to get married don't think about sex sex is chocolate cake you put it in the fridge you stay out the kitchen you just don't look at it which doesn't help when the chocolate cake is everywhere going eat me eat me you know like it's it, <laughs> really appealing a, yeah i didn't think that analogy through like, i definitely <laughs> want to eat the chocolate cake no, that's it just give me some chocolate cake and so when i then um met this guy at 17 he was 17 too he said he'd recently become a christian i'm like oh 
he's in that's it and he was really beautiful and so I was like right well that's it I don't have to ask any deeper questions about his character about what sort of person he is because he's he's you know prayed the prayer he's in that's it and so it means that you're not asking deeper questions about is this person the right person for me you you know you're literally your only criteria is are they a Christian and then your kind of teenage hormones are they hot the end (laughs) that's it (laughs) is that does because I think I'm I'm sure there are lots of um, seventeen year olds whose main criteria for whether they date someone is how hot they are. Yeah. Um, was the idea that in order to have sex you had to get married? Was there a sense of kind of a means to an end almost about the idea of getting married that w- is then created if you can't if you're not allowed to have sex until you're married? That does that add a, a motivating factor? <laughs> like, like hugely, like there's so many like Christians get married at a much younger age than like the you know kind of at, in in Christian culture. If you're not married by the time you're 25, you're like you know kind of really in trouble. Do you know like which I mean g- given our cultural kind of framework, people do not get married until they're like n- n- in late like towards 30 or after. You know like no, it's not. It does mirror the fact that in the rest in the rest of culture, if you're still a virgin at 25, then yeah. people are laughing at you. So I guess that. So there is still a kind of presumption that like you should have had sex, but yeah. so and you, if you can't sex too much, you sort of get married. So definitely, you, you know, uh, Christians aren't usually together. I'd say generally that long before they get married as well, because you can't have sex. So it is a huge driving force towards marriage. Um, because, you know, but I, I would say actually, like the statistics and my experience with Christians is that it, it's not necessarily that Christians don't have sex; they just don't plan to have sex because you're not allowed to plan to have sex because that would be bad. So, so oh, actually, like this, I'm sure there's some research in the US that says Christians are not less likely to have sex before marriage; they're less likely to use contraception because oh, if you gosh. have contraception, you've proven <laughs> that you've planned it, which you're not allowed to plan to do. So there's all if these it's kind, kind of in the heat of the moment, you lose control, then you can just uh, like repent afterwards. Yeah, but I think there's bad. still a kind. Well, I mean it depends you know I've got um somebody I know and um he's in a relationship and the church are being very funny about the fact that she she sometimes stays over in a spare room at the house and they're saying oh I don't think that's wise or you shouldn't really be in the same house after this time at night and you should you know really only married couples should be eating breakfast together and you like see, I mean seriously this is like real advice to real kind of grown-up adults and so so there is kind of this idea that you should put lots of barriers in place to prevent you from having sex but then if you do accidentally do it then from an internal perspective you can sort of rationalize it oh I I didn't really mean it oh it was an accident we didn't mean it you're supposed to put lots of things to stop you and then if you get there as long as it wasn't on purpose then you sort of you sort of legitimizing in your brain well I suppose there's an acknowledgement with with that idea that you need to put all those barriers in place that it will take a lot of willpower that you will want to that that that, that drive and that desire is there Yes, I think so, and particularly for men more than women. So I think, you know, kind of the, the message generally across Christian culture is very kind of neurosexist in terms of, like, Cordelia Fine stuff around the idea that men are just, like, innately sexual and women just are innately emotional and, and you know... I don't know that word, neurosexist. Okay, is that what that yeah, refers so to Cordelia that? Fine, um, who is a neuroscientist, um, has written an amazing book called Delusions of Gender. She's written another one called Testosterone Rex more recently. And it's all about the idea that um, a lot of kind of uh, evolutionary biology um, and evolutionary psychology, this idea that we are innately, um, that men are innately kind of aggressive or innately sexually kind of 
um, whatever, or that you know, even kind of the even outside of sexuality, things like that. Boys are more are better at um, kind of puzzles, and girls are better at loving, and yeah. you know, all that stuff is within the kind of wider framework of all the gender stereotypes. Yeah, all the kind right. of gender stereotypes that are based on this idea of science. You know, that science proves that boys are better at this and girls are better at this. That actually, all of that science, when you unpick it, is usually either based on research which hasn't acknowledged the the kind of um, prejudice is and how quickly we are socialized into stuff um or um it's just like wrong very much like it's not just sex kind of masturbation you don't do masturbate you're not supposed right. to masturbate in Christi- christians there's a presumption that boys are but there is a presumption generally that's not a thing girls really struggle with so um, this is yeah something that exists socially to me i certainly sort of received the idea growing up that all boys masturbated and that no girls masturbated yeah so i think it, what within christian culture you just add a a god disapproval to that and yeah. you add like you know you add this idea that god made us this way which then becomes not just like um my brain tells me this is the way i am but also like there's some greater purpose to that so it adds right. like, an additional weighting to the idea that men are powerful and women are emotional you know so that that then becomes a this is the 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 tell us you know the the trajectory of our lives are towards these particular purposes as men and women so you end up so it just becomes a greater weightedness towards kind of biological essentialism really this idea that men and women about their biological difference is also about their um kind of uh, their who they are as human beings their their identity um and the way i love that you just dropped telos in there (laughs) that's ancient greek for purpose if you didn't study yeah so this (laughs) idea that it you know that's the kind of that telos is this idea isn't it that that sort of that's the that's the trajectory we're on the place that we're ending up at Mm. and so so i think um for 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 me like growing up in that like a I didn't really have an opportunity to develop a relationship with my body when I came to see your play and um early on in the the the, in the performance where you see um uh this kind of relationship to the girl having this relationship to her body that's very organic and natural and this idea that like actually rubbing myself up against stuff and how that feels and that that's a nice thing and there's no shame attached to that I did I was like oh is that what it's not is that what it's supposed to be like when you're a kid oh like what there's a point where it's not like inappropriate to touch yourself like oh this is an odd thing and I think you know growing up I don't remember a time where um kind of my sexuality wasn't problematic and so I think you know that there and I guess you know it's not only a Christian thing lots of families don't encourage children to have a relationship to their genitals that's not shameful you know um absolutely and I mean to be fair that you know the narrative um in the show is that that's very early it's Mm. very young that there's this kind of pre-shame um enjoyment of the body yeah before um, the shame arrives and then it arrives <laughs> like you know in full force yeah. and and suddenly that there's a kind of this sort of self-awareness and it, it's funny actually because it slightly mirrors um in my head the Adam and Eve putting the leaves over their genitals you know that kind yeah. of you're you're in a state of innocence and then you go oh this is a shameful disgusting thing yeah um and that's not actually correct but it feels so integral to culture that that is what we all think (laughs) yeah and I think what's really interesting is that given that kind of Christian well you know that Jewish narrative that's also a Christian narrative around um Adam and Eve that you would hope that kind of Christian Christianity would be like oh so like this nakedness is beautiful and is like not shameful and actually it's sin that makes it shameful (laughs) but like sadly we like it might be something that we theoretically think but actually there's this big fear about giving particularly people who are not married well one of the things is it's the idea that 
that before you're married you're not supposed to think about sex and then when you get married you're supposed to have awesome mind-blowing sex because because post-marital sex is supposed to be like this is how god made it to be so it should be amazing and awesome but it gets you know kind of the theory that you can go from not thinking about this thing <laughs> for you know potentially you might not get married till you're like 30 so 30 and then you're supposed to just be really like Oh, it's awesome. I mean, apart from anything else, if you're a woman, like UTIs are likely to start. He's likely going to have like some irritation down there if you've but not also touched if it you've for thirty not, years. If you're not supposed to have had any relationship with your own body, yeah, no masturbation. That's nothing. the thing. I think if you were able to to be exploring your own sexuality, yeah. then you could potentially come together with a partner after a long time. Yeah, and if you were both very in touch with yourselves, if you'd also cultivated an emotional relationship with that person maybe the sex could be good relatively quickly but if you've been completely disconnected from your your own sexuality and your own body then that's a lot to ask (laughs) yeah well this is it and so I think you know for me like that meant that when I was 17 I met this guy he was hot um I was like the first thing I said one of the first thing I said was I won't I'm not gonna have I'm a virgin I'm not gonna have sex till I'm married like I said this like I went the first time I was in a non-christian environment I went to sixth form college well it was like a vocational type college and I announced to the entire class I'm a virgin I'm a Christian like this was like you know and it was very much for me my identity as a virgin was how I was being set apart from culture I was different to all the other girls here because they were all like either having sex or pursuing sex and so this was what made me different it's what showed that I was like it was part of my very core identity as a Christian yeah and that this is how I be one is by be you know sex becomes the um identifier of whether you're in or out um and you know it's not it shouldn't really be in or out but actually you know humans like that and christians like the in and out too we like clubs yeah we like clubs it's like that human nature thing and so then when i met um this guy at 17 um and told him i didn't want to say it's poor marriage and he said okay and then within 12 days had um he was very very abusive and within 12 days of manipulating me into sleeping with him without me even having any framework for knowing that that could happen because all i knew was that you had to choose to have sex and so i hadn't made a choice but then after i felt really bad because essentially he'd sexually abused me and raped me i my framework was oh, I've, I feel bad. The reason this feels bad is because I've betrayed Jesus. It wasn't because this person has done something that has, you know, broken my boundaries and stopped me being able to have, like, you know, I haven't had a choice yeah. in this. It was like, oh, I must have chosen. I don't really remember choosing, but I must have chosen this. And therefore, I've now betrayed Jesus. That's why I feel bad. And so I remember leaving his house after he'd manipulate me into sleeping with him and um and like he'd groomed me over a very short period of time and uh, I just remember thinking oh well I'm gonna have to marry him and like I just remember oh, being shit. 17 in like 2002 like it's not that long ago you know people yeah. think this is like a long you know decades you know long time ago but yeah I remember being 17 thinking well the only way I can solve this is marrying him and I just remember like making this decision right that's what that's what the world looks like now um so he then proceeded to start cheating on me and I was like well I've got to forgive him because all, all these other Christian cultural narratives come in oh well if I forgive him if I love him enough if I if I show him Jesus enough then he'll stop being an awful person and I can save him and Jesus will save him and it'll be beautiful the end and we can get married and we fix everything so so yeah so (laughs) which was not very healthy Mm. and um and so at 17 I'm I'm then with in a relationship with somebody who's very damaging who was very abusive would call me awful names all the time very coercive very controlling he cheated on me all the time he sat me down after sleeping with me he sat me down and said I'm an awful person I'm going to treat you terribly 
And instead of like running away going, he's a psychopath, I was like, <laughs> oh, he's so honest. Oh, His honesty. You know, and it wasn't it wasn't just about Christian culture. Christian culture was definitely this additional layer that meant that I didn't run away as fast as I could. But actually, like, I was the generation of cruel intentions and ten things I hate about you. Mm. They were the films that like defined bad boys. Yeah, and, and so actually, like, he fitted that. This idea that, you know, these bad boys that are saved by the love of a good woman were that that, you know, kind of all the magazines that I'd read or the songs that are out there or the films they're all kind of reinforcing this idea that somebody bad can be made good and so the uh, the additional layer for me growing up in Christian culture was that this has a a kind of greater purpose that this is well also that that's his his nature like you said that kind of biological determinism that men are designed to have those kind of stronger desires and libidos and it's very difficult for them and so you have to be patient with them and and they're your sort of there's there's this and it wasn't necessarily explicit but you know this idea that men lead um you know my parents had a very traditional marriage my mum stayed at home my dad went out to work she did the cooking the cleaning you know that she didn't drive so I you know even when when we got to a point where we decided who was going to learn to drive first I was like oh well obviously you will because women don't need to learn to drive I mean like we're not in Saudi Arabia it's 2003 in the north of England but you know so it's I guess Christian culture was just one layer on many but that but that layer was could actually kind of in terms of um, now I would say that layer could have been a protective factor if if it, I'd have had a different framework so actually this idea that that God thinks that we're valuable and that you know d- that somebody shouldn't disrespect our bodies and that we should have full control over our bodies and that could you know like so it can mm-hmm. it's not that those things are not you know a lot of the narratives in wider culture could be shifted to say something much more positive so I think it wasn't yeah for me it wasn't inherent message present within the Bible or within my experience of God it was much more the layering of that and, and the patriarchy and um something good that my experience yeah. has been of so so at 17 I then um so my, I, I was kind of in a bad place when it came to contraception because I'd gone to a Catholic secondary school so I didn't learn about contraception because you know it's Catholic oh, yeah. and then um my mum and dad read the Daily Mail so thought the pill gave you cancer oh. and then my um now ex-husband but then boyfriend he um he was like, oh, it's not real if there's not a risk. And so... It's not real if yes, there's not a yes. risk. so that was one of the things he said to me. And so... so yeah, that was like... And, and actually, I've like... Never, this is a real... This is come up with that? No, I like, alliterative it's, it's, bullshit <laughs> Well, at the time, I was just like, oh, well, I obviously don't... You know, and, and I'd kind of made it very clear. I'd grown up in a like a like ragingly pro-life household so mm. i'd been very clear like well you know it's not gonna happen to me <laughs> i'm not gonna get pregnant i don't like some like it's just not gonna happen but even if it, if it ever was to you need to be aware that this would be the op that this would be what happened and I, i'd already sort of like was inevitably i'm gonna marry this person so it kind of it, do you know what i mean like the the pregnancy risk was sort of you know like i don't know like I, and i was so caught up in this control and like he he used so one of the tactics abusers use is exhaustion where um actually he would keep me up very late at night talking and want to um spend all his time with me so he isolated me from any other um people um love bombing is a tactic of abusers where they're just uh, putting so so much time like it's like cults do where he wanted to spend all his time with me wanted to know everything about me he told me how much he loved me bought me presents it was this kind of overwhelming sense where you lose any sense of perspective i was then exhausted i was then you know um being degraded and but humiliated. Also you feel, presumably that also makes you feel special and important yeah, of course. and valued. Like, and, uh, yeah, 
yeah, growing up in a, you know, growing up, like I was dealing with some issues from being a young, being a child and stuff that had gone on. And so that as well (laughs) meant that actually he became this person who came in and said, I will be your person. Mm. And, and I was like, oh, well, this is it. This is it. And I'm now, I've now slept with this person. So this is really, I'm kind of committed to them in some very extreme way. And so within six months, I'm pregnant. I mean, it's it's a miracle it wasn't less than six months, really. (laughs) So I'm pregnant. And then, um, and so... And so then was like, oh, well, uh, you know, and and actually, like, and I would say that for me, like, being, a, I was a teenage mom, it really made a huge positive difference to my life. And I think this idea that teenage motherhood is the worst thing in the world now as a, as a 33-year-old, and I'm seeing kind of people who are my age starting to have kids, and I think, oh, I wouldn't want to have had all that time to myself. <laughs> I wouldn't have had all that life to myself to then have to, like, learn how to navigate, you know, a, another human being. And also, like, the expectations you can build up as, you, you know, whereas I, did, I was just literally like you know I don't I don't have a time to think so in some ways actually my ability to be a parent was not necessarily damaged by being a teenager um it wasn't a negative thing for me and I think for me I I'm glad that I had my daughter so yeah so at 17 I'm then pregnant I then move in with him and you know I was with him for four years basically and he was abusive in every way very sexually abusive and so um and I then was like well I've got to marry him then I can't divorce him because you're not allowed to get divorced I've got to forgive him if I forgive him and if I model this forgiveness then that's going to result in him changing because that that it's like this this kind of formula that's actually really not very useful because actually there's no consequences why would he change he's getting Mm. whatever he wants he's getting he's got somebody who does whatever he wants whenever he wants he's got you know this kind of sex slave who you know and I just I got to the point where I would say yes to everything he said because I knew that he'd make me do it anyway and doing it with somehow sort of some psychological idea that I'd consented made it like it wasn't actually that bad that's really interesting I just want to pick up on that because I think that's something that um is kind of very under discussed and something which I feel like is maybe slightly come, starting to come to the surface in terms of the conversation uh, kind of post me too and yeah. um talking about consent and things because I think obviously there's this very black and white narrative which is very important to establish which is that no means no mm. um but there's also this huge gray area where yeah. um and and that idea exactly what you just expressed that a woman might say yes because she doesn't trust that her no would be listened to and yeah. so therefore it feels like at least you're able to retain a little bit of control over the situation you're able to frame it in your own mind yeah. as um a more positive experience well i had drunk sex with that guy which i regret because it wasn't that great it's like but i did that's different to that guy raped me yeah. like that's much less horrific to sort of have Um, yeah in your head yeah yeah, and I think the whole like one of the things that people often don't realize about victim blaming is the reason victim blaming exists psychologically is because um everybody in society needs to feel that they're safe and that their people are safe and so the way that we do that is by saying the way that people avoid being attacked is by taking these actions and knowing what an abuser looks like and that means that we're safe and so anybody who doesn't isn't kept safe by taking that they must not have taken the right actions because it's much less safer to live in a world where we cannot control that we might be raped we cannot stop that from happening and so there's a wider investment socially and so when we try and talk about addressing victim blame we start by recognizing there's a really 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 deeply held psychological need of safety that we're trying to remove from people to say guess what anybody can be raped you know guess what so yeah. anybody could be a rapist and that's, that's a really good point it's terrifying so people would rather believe that 
if you take the correct precautions, if you don't wear the short skirt or if you don't yeah, drink too you're much, safe. then you'll be safe. Because yeah. to admit that it could just happen to anyone at any time is terrifying. Yeah, and so we don't want to do that. And so what happens then, and that's why people, that's what self-blame is about. That's why there's an inherent, that that powerlessness is so dangerous to the human psyche that we will do anything to avoid it. And so mm. when we are subjected to violence or abuse, particularly sexual violence, because it is that um, destruction of our own bodily autonomy in very, very specific ways, we we think, well, it must, I must, I must have done something it must be my fault because at least then I had some power because a I had some power which means that means that I wasn't powerless and b it means that I can make sure it doesn't I'm never subjected to that again and yeah. so there's a very there's a very necessary kind of it's a it's a coping strategy denial is a strategy you know yeah. blame is a strategy self-blame is a strategy and so it's not that we don't need to overcome that but recognizing why somebody is invested in this is my fault enables us to be careful in how we go about helping them to realize it's not because when we take away that capacity to feel like I had power powerlessness is a is a really dangerous thing to realize that we were in a position of because it's it you know we need to not feel powerless and so you know for me that was partly why I would say yes to stuff or would agree to stuff and also like I think my entire identity became around I'm really good at performing sex I can do I can do all this stuff and this makes me I'm really sexually liberated by being up for all this stuff that's actually really perverted oh, really? Yeah, so yeah. you actually managed to kind of twist the narrative in your own head to being a positive yeah thing. like oh I'm just you know like yeah like it's all it's all good and I think that's one of the, re- the things that I think is really interesting um around this wider culture and the kind of celebration of pornography or porn, you know that this you know my I think the the way that pornography is used by abusers to normalize very brutal sexual practices is not talked about enough and a lot of women who talk about oh yeah I watch porn it's you know it's this liberated thing a lot of that is because the only way for me to make sense of the fact that I'm having I'm being you know brutal anal sex is being demanded of me is to try and make out that it's actually something I really enjoy it's empowering yeah oh yeah I'm making the answer so I think, you know, and, and so it's where I guess I've I've come to this conclusion that, like, I guess Christian culture comes with this whole narrative that's, like, makes sex really kind of shameful and, and problematic over there. But the other option, this idea that we're all liberated by having as much sex as we possibly can, isn't necessarily any more healthy. And if you look at, say, the Aziz Ansari case and mm-hmm. how what was being described by the woman, um, that Aziz Ansari, he's a, you know, well-known actor for people who aren't aware of the case, you know, and there was this kind of... Uh, she went back to his his uh, his flat after a um, day and he kind of pushed her into doing some sexual stuff that she wasn't comfortable with but she didn't really say she didn't explicitly said no but she did say I'm not really comfortable with this and so when you look at how ambiguous these sexual encounters are and I think you know there's this lie that women have been told that within um, that we can just go into sexual encounters with men as equals and that negates the idea that patriarchy exists it negates the actual great physical strength that most men have than women mm-hmm. and you know it also negates the fact that no matter what a man does he is not going to end up with another human being potentially growing inside of him mm-hmm. and so there is always going to be a different a dif- differences in terms of how men and women are ever able to navigate sexual interactions and so yeah so for me I think yeah I mean I think I've just said like a lot of things <laughs> no 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 well, that, I, to pick up on that yeah because I found the Aziz Ansari case really interesting because I think that's definitely a case of this grey area and I think in some areas the debate got polarised into whether or not what he'd done should be categorised as assault and should be illegal and da, da, da. and I think most people would probably agree that 
um, he didn't do anything illegal, you know, because mm. she is very open about the fact that she didn't explicitly tell him to stop doing anything, whatever. And that's, yeah. at the moment, the way that the law works is this kind of, you know, explicit kind of black and white consent concept. Yeah. But that it felt like, to me reading it, and I think for most, well, at least women reading it, it felt like... Um, I w- I, and also personally, I was disappointed because I, I've been a really big fan of his recently. Mm. I really love his show Master of None and it's really diverse and feminist. And and I just went, oh, that was shitty. One. That was shitty <laughs> yeah. behaviour. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm now going to write you off completely as a human being. Actually, for me personally, I was like, I can imagine that you genuinely sort of didn't really realise that you were doing something wrong. But that is a problem. The fact that that could be the case, that you could be behaving in a way which I think is obviously disrespectful and coercive and not register that that is problematic. I don't recognise the power that he held either. Yeah. He just kind of put himself as, I'm an equal in this rather than actually I'm someone well-known, I've got a lot of power and actually this is my environment that I've brought you into, not recognising power dynamics as well. But that's interesting as well because I think there's a similar thing that happens, like you were saying um, in terms of women not wanting to feel powerless, that women do the same thing of perceiving themselves as and and obviously it's tricky using the word equal because we are equals um, <laughs> but um but you know thinking therefore that you are equally powerful in any given situation yeah. with a man and that's not necessarily the case in fact or very rarely is the case and so um the idea that you might feel pressured feels sort of unjustified yeah and also like it it sort of it goes against this kind of powerful woman narrative that women have been sold this idea that that for women to be liberated is about you being able to enter any situation with a man sexually and presume equality in that interaction which you know when you look at kind of patriarchy it's inherently unequal before you even start and then when you look at porn culture the objectification and sexualization of women where we're already starting with so many unequal and also kind of for him that him being physically more powerful and actually women being socialized to be polite and nice and so you don't say i'm not really enjoying this and you don't say don't do this to me that's the other thing is that there's also this lack of focus on female enjoyment which i think is key because it's not just about and sometimes it feels a bit depressing in a way the conversation becomes about you know consent and whether you've done anything wrong and it's like that's a pretty low bar. Like <laughs> both people should be having an amazing time. That's yeah. what we should be aiming for. Like what what as his his focus should have been is this woman experiencing pleasure? Is yeah. she really enjoying the things that I'm doing? And I think that all men really have been socialised to prioritise their own pleasure and all women have been socialised to prioritise the man's pleasure. Yeah. And I think, but that's, yeah, I think that's about, you know, again, pornography and about there isn't models of female pleasure being important. You know, there's that, there's a really brilliant article that if people Google the, um, the female price, price of male pleasure. And there's a really interesting stat in that about how when women were asked about their most negative sexual experiences they were always about coercion and violence and abuse and when men talked and pains physical pain whereas um when men were asked about their most negative sexual experience it was about a lack of pleasure and so actually you know that that we are are, the trajectory that we are on from birth as women and men are very different in terms of what is a priority and what is important in terms of sexual pleasure
pleasure and um, and and yeah and and what that kind of ownership do we own our own bodies do we believe we own the other person's body you know I think that actually what you have is you have men who believe they own their own bodies and and you know a, a significant proportion who think they also own the, the woman's body and you have women who don't even think they own their own bodies and so actually if, you, if we don't believe we own ourselves how do we get to a point where we assert the rights over our own bodies so one of the statistics around teenage mothers is that almost all teenage mothers will be subjected to abuse by a partner and when when I do training I say ask people what why do you think that is Mm. and people say oh is it because she's young because he's young because of stress because of financial difficulties and all this kind of stuff and actually the reason is is because coercing somebody into pregnancy forcing them into pregnancy or um, manipulating them into it is a form of abuse and so um, uh, at least 50% of the women I've worked with over the years so I used to run a lot of programs for women who've been subjected to abuse by a partner at least 50% of those with children hadn't chose to become pregnant Um, and it's a a topic that's not really talked about much because you know we love our children and so if we've got them we're not going to be like well I didn't want you I didn't even you know and actually this you are a product of violence who's going to say that nobody is going to but the amount of women whose partners had pricked holes in condoms and not told them who had um flushed their pill down the toilet you know i was speaking to a woman the other day and she used to have to sellotape her pill to the underside of the windowsill outside of the window because if he found it he would have beaten her coercing somebody into pregnancy or forcing them into it is a part of the abusive process and the reason why girls young women are so vulnerable to that is because we, when when we're young we've we haven't learned to have the con- um to feel we have control of our fertility so actually when a girl's only been having periods for a few months or a few years how does she feel she has the right to go no you can't do that unless you wear a condom and so what you have is you have this high vulnerability of somebody who's young and hasn't learned that they can control their fertility and often has never nobody's ever thought that's an important thing to tell her yeah. <laughs> and then you have somebody who deliberately takes advantage of that because because actually you know the narrative we have in society is all these single teen mothers who are getting themselves pregnant to get housed or whatever nobody ever talks about the fact that actually most of the time it's men and boys who are coercing you know are getting girls pregnant to control them because actually if, if you have somebody's baby it, you are tied to them for life mm. and so the the way that pregnancy is used as a form of abuse um, is something that a lot of people are really unaware of and that is yeah. very important in terms of the whole understanding that the abuse is prior to pregnancy so for me you know that's that really is... interesting as well isn't it because the narrative is also that um obviously teenage boys don't want their girlfriend to get pregnant that you know that, that's what yeah. we assume that, that um boys and young men are terrified of people getting pregnant they don't want yes okay there's also a narrative that they don't want to use a condom because it doesn't feel as good or whatever but that's usually focused on pleasure not the idea yeah. that they might actually tactically want to get a woman pregnant as a form of control yeah um because of course you're massively incapacitated if you're pregnant or if you have a baby to look after yeah. then that's it's another it can be another form of isolation and yeah you know one of the things we don't often talk about with abusers is the fact that there's a lot of benefits to being abusive so this idea that for the boy like for a teenage boy or an adult man that they don't want her to be pregnant actually it's not like they're gonna look after the baby they're not gonna have to push mm. it out of their vagina they're not gonna, they're not gonna have to do you know what they're gonna do is they're just gonna be able to control them more so this this idea that babies are a bad thing for boys and men presumes that boys and men are going to take that responsibility seriously which yeah. you know and there's, a, there's really interesting research around I was reading yesterday actually this book with I think the woman's called somebody hooker I think but anyway she 
she's read a she wrote a book with of her interviews with men who'd raped in in prison so incarcerated men in america and only 22 percent of those men um expressed any sort of um shame about what they'd done they just so what they saw is most men talked about um having been sexually satisfied they did what they wanted to do so there isn't this there's this idea that being abusive troubles the person who's abusive (laughs) and it doesn't it benefits them if you know if i'm if i'm abusive i get somebody to meet my every need to do what i want to you know and so we presume that somebody doesn't actually want to be abusive which again you know not that is not the truth the reality is that people abuse because they get what they want through doing it see again i think that's probably one of those things isn't it where we just don't want that to be true that's just such a depressing (laughs) it's easier to think that those people are also in some way sort of troubled victims that need rescuing which i really relate to because i hate the idea of people being bad i mean it's funny because actually in terms of sort of you know connecting it back to christianity but i i mean i went to a um a quaker school actually which was lovely and that one of the phrases they use is that um everybody has the light of god within them and that's why everybody is equal and so even though i i never sort of believed in god i like that image of everybody having this light in them and being kind of you know valuable and the idea that everybody is fundamentally good and can be saved, I find yeah. really appealing. <laughs> and the idea that like some people just enjoy abusing is really difficult to kind yeah, of mix I, it with that. Yeah, and I think there's that's it. You know, when I ask why does abuse happen in training, people always say they give me a list of things like um, mental illness childhood trauma stress not having power in another area of their life now what's really interesting is you wouldn't say that about women you know because you would say oh well in her job she's really powerless so she goes home at night and punches her husband no he like he just does it only works because of how our construct of masculinity you know our drugs or alcohol but actually what the evidence shows is if if somebody gets clean if they stop using drugs or alcohol it, it may stop the most extreme violence but it doesn't stop them being controlling because so so the reason somebody's abusive is fundamentally because they believe that they own their partner and they're entitled to get what they want from their partner that's that's what that's fundamentally what it is and if you any work that's done with perpetrators that's effective deals with that works on their beliefs of ownership and entitlement and recognizes that those beliefs are formed in a society where they are socialized to think it's okay that you know that actually i do own my partner and i do have the right to do what i want to them um and so um it's why counseling isn't ever effective for abusers because what counseling does is it looks um it looks at my feelings and other people's actions and what an abuser needs to look at is other people's feelings and their actions um, because it's the opposite it's my actions towards others that the problem not you know and so fundamentally it like you say we don't want to believe that people make choices to be abusive so what we do is we create a narrative which says oh they can't really help it that's also why victim blaming exists because she must have done something to Mm. cause him to do that so whether that's because we say he's had a bad childhood about 50% of abusers didn't grow up witnessing any abuse um, and where where a man grows up seeing a woman being abusive to a man they're not more likely to be abusive so this is about about a role modeling it's not that trauma causes them to abuse it's that when they see that that's how men treat women that's how I should treat women so yeah. it's about that recognition it's that socializing and so yeah I think that overall we're very invested in believing that a people bring abuse on themselves b that people who abuse aren't it's not really their fault 
and see that we're safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those things drive us towards particular ways of enacting stuff. And I think it's interesting because, like, actually for me as a Christian, I do believe that the idea of the soul, the idea that there is this, that people are created beings, that it is that that is what makes people worthy. So it's not the fact that somebody makes good or bad choices that is an, that that gives them value. It's because actually that's why we, that's why I would believe somebody with learning difficulties or a person with dementia has value because our value isn't in whether we can do good or bad things there's something about being a human that makes you inherently valuable so I suppose for me that's why um yeah why I guess in some ways I can probably embrace the idea that abuse are making choices because I don't think that their choice to be an awful person makes them less of a human than somebody's choice to be a good person because your humanity is based on the fact that you are a created being right, and yeah. you know kind of imbued with a soul yeah so that's a different perspective I suppose okay yeah that's interesting so I want I want to come around to this idea um that you talk about in one of the blogs that I read which you kind of hinted at at the very beginning of mm the idea that marital sex is meant to always be great yeah um and that you've had this kind of upbringing where you're not supposed to think about sex you're not supposed to masturbate you're not supposed to have a relationship with your body and then when you get married magically you're going to have this mind-blowing transcendent experience (laughs) um and obviously we've talked about your first marriage which was a a particularly awful experience in terms of being abusive but even in non-abusive situations yeah and i believe in your second marriage that that isn't necessarily the case that you suddenly have this revelatory wonderful time yeah so um yeah so i i left my ex-husband um i didn't it wasn't like i got some amazing strength from somewhere he assaulted me and my son was born three months premature so we then ended up moving to a hospital which was um quite away from our hometown which enabled me to separate from him and i had a two and a half year old too so it went through this very dramatic you know like in the kind of scale it's quite dramatically awful (laughs) experience of living in a hospital and it was for me it was there that i really became kind of like it was when i lost everything that i discovered this experience of like the god who is and and discovered this experience of liberation and healing and transformation that I hadn't really accessed or recognised growing up. And so I then ended up... um God told me to marry the man that's now my husband, which yeah, I, I like people are just like I mean it's the most unfeminist thing, isn't it? Like I had a divinely arranged a dying divinely arranged marriage, like and a I think man in this guy told you. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, like I totally recognise that it's totally crazy, but I could uh, ten years into the marriage, I can say he would never have been someone that I would have chosen to marry. I wasn't attracted to him, he was thirteen years older than me. But he'd been um single and didn't think he'd get married or have kids, and suddenly then I like I basically said to God, You're gonna have to tell him because I'm not telling him and uh God did tell him, um, and so basically, I love we, that you have this just like direct line. Yeah, like it's, it's crazy. Like it was, it is crazy. And I'm like, this is not how most Christians get married. They normally do the normal thing of dating and going, "Oh, I like you. I don't like you. Right? We should do. We should get together." So um, anyway, so we got married six months after we had this revelatory we're supposed to get married so we did and so we entered into this marriage and we didn't have sex till we got married because we were you know doing the christian thing we went we thought you do marriage preparation stuff right. in that you know i don't know where, not, what whether people do it when they're not christian <laughs> on weird but you do this thing where you like have a book and it's actually a really good thing to do because you talk about how much money will you spend before you um like talk to each other like how are you gonna like you know what are your views on raising children so you know it's quite a good thing in terms but that's of like, like a sort of compatibility test like yeah how are we going to live our lives yeah how we, and so so yeah so it's actually like a lot of non-religious people probably yeah they should have they should have like but i I think also it's because you probably usually cohabit before you 
get to you know so you don't it so becomes that it a will gradual, organically yeah, yeah you can work like but actually I think the, I think there should be like a pre-cohabitation course that you can go on that's like <laughs> do we how are we going to spend money how are we going to navigate this if we do have kids what do we think about it and so um, you know it's not not everything about Christianity is crazy and cult, some of it's good so we did this thing and one of the questions is how often do you think you're going to have sex a week because obviously you're not having sex so I'd put like 14 times a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he put like two and I thought oh he was being God. polite and he thought that I was being exaggerating and it turned out like that's actually what we thought like I'd been married to somebody who thought it was normal to have sex multiple times a day he'd been single and tried to avoid thinking about sex for his nearly his entire life like he had had sex before but you know it wasn't he was like he'd been single for 13 years and you just like don't think about it like don't think about it at the end and so suddenly like we didn't we didn't have sex we got married and so then we get married go on the honeymoon and I'm like ready for 14 times in the week and he's like well we did it last night I don't think maybe we'll do it next we'll do it in a couple of days and I'm like are you mad <laughs> what is wrong with you so it was just like this total um total kind of incompatibility sexually and given like that you know and this is one of the things i think a lot of not people who aren't christians think about this kind of not having premarital sex is like well how what how do you know like they're gonna be compatible and like you know i entered a marriage to somebody that i wasn't that my primary driver to that marriage was not around sexual attraction like it wasn't that wasn't part of it really for me and so entered this marriage and and sex was an absolute nightmare within about a few months we were in um sex therapy um which was which was interesting but I mean we're a decade in now and like things have really been transformed and you know I do find him attractive now you know it took, it took a few, <laughs> few took a little while and then um, actually really recently I had like this huge revelation because I thought it was all down to him because he wasn't as interested in sex as I was and I think kind of culturally there's a whole thing about men with lower sex drives than women and like what you know what masculinity is caught up with that and he's an awesome awesome man so I think I'd I hadn't realised until very, very recently that how much my sexuality was not really about, was actually being, was very disembodied and was very much about being emotionally, like literally I'd leave myself at the door. And, and I kind of thought that he, it was all on him, that he wasn't doing, wasn't getting it and wasn't as interested in me as as I was and et cetera, et cetera. And they were, you know, that was part of it. But I hadn't realised how much it was about my history that actually I'd been like sexually abuse and and I think like when you when I've read stuff tried to find stuff about sexual abuse and and recovery and stuff there's very little that says and you like to have lots of sex (laughs) that's not a general you're supposed to not like it yeah you're supposed to not want to have sex and you're supposed to find sex very difficult whereas for me like actually part of my identity was I'm very good at performing sex I'm very good at having sex like and he doesn't even want to have it like and what does that mean about but but so so just to clarify that so you said that I think you said that you sort of you left yourself at the door and it Mm. was disembodied so um just to check that I'm understanding correctly there was this idea that you you wanted to have lots of sex but when you were having the sex you were well you've used the word performing a couple of times you were performing it rather than feeling that you were kind of rooted in yourself definitely and that it was kind of like it was about the physical pleasure rather than there being anything kind of deeper about like bringing my whole self and my whole like soul and my in my entire kind of emotional being to this act with this other person and that actually is the most awesome person in the world like to me and so I think yeah like, and there wasn't I hadn't found anywhere and like still haven't found it that really talks about that do you know like that that's and I think probably a lot of women even those women who haven't been sexually abused that we are socialized to not really 
be emotionally embodied and be connected with our sexuality. Well, also, you know what but, I mean? well it's funny, isn't it? Because it's it kind of go it pulls in both directions because women are the ones that are supposed to want sex to be emotional yeah. and to and to think of it as being about love, mm. and men are the ones that are supposed to think of it as purely physical. And so it feels like it's under discussed the idea that a woman might think of it yeah. as purely physical. Or, or, or that yeah, that could be. And I think some of it's about vulnerability that actually. Um, I think that for, for, for living as a woman in our society involves building up barriers to vulnerability because it's just not very safe to mm. be a woman. It's not very safe to own your feelings and to tell people how you feel and who you are. And so we're very driven, you know, and it's, it's there's a lot of safety in not doing that, particularly when you're naked and in a, you know, in a... Yeah, and so if you're not really there, then you're not vulnerable. They, they, yeah. Whatever can happen to your body, but that's not you. So yeah. it's not, you're not, you are not your body, so therefore exactly. you're safe. Sort of, yeah, so there's a safety to that. And, you know, so I think, and so it's been like a really long journey at the moment like we're in a really amazing place actually and and sex is really awesome and and it's not because like he's suddenly become performing exactly what I'd decided you know that that should be on the list of things or whatever so so I think part of it is you know it has been a negotiation so I would say yeah like absolutely crap Christian sex is you know and I think this is every time I talk to Christians who are like saving sex till marriage or whatever like I'm just like just so you know sex can be crap like do you know just like just so you know on your honeymoon well I always I don't actually I don't tell them that their honeymoon is going to be terrible I just like just so you know we had a terrible honeymoon when it came to sex because I just want somebody to tell them it's not all going to be like hearts and flowers and you know if you haven't had sex before you're likely to end up if you're a woman with um a UTI or thrush or something like you know you'd like seriously you need to go like prepared with canister also I suppose it's useful to know that that's not because like something's wrong or you've done something wrong yeah, exactly. or, you know, and the, I think that, I think this is it that women are often told like and men in church you're told that if you wait till you till you get married you get to, like God that's a special God's going to reward you for mm. your waiting by giving you awesome sex and you know I know at least one woman who has um, vaginismus as a result of Christian purity teachings and her and her husband have been married for over a decade and cannot have penetrative sex be- and never have and so that and actually like the betrayal of mm. of being told if you do this you're going to have this and then to discover like that's not like actually that's not even physically possible you know and so I think there's so much that women particularly women and men are being sold this lie and so I guess my experience of like the most awesome sex of my life has been with somebody that I'm married to in a situation that's respectful and awesome and so like I'm not saying married sex can't be awesome but yeah Christian sex can be and post-marital sex can just be potentially particularly hideous too. hideous <laughs> or amazing hideous or amazing is and you know just like middle of the road neither yeah, nor there yeah. <laughs> do, do you feel like now you're more able to kind of prioritise your own pleasure because I feel like the, the idea of your personal pleasure wasn't centered for you Mm. growing up is that something that you've kind of connected with yeah I think so I mean I think it's been something as a feminist it's something I guess I've be I became very aware of when me and my husband got married because and as I started to embrace feminism like this like there was something really 
important for me in discovering that patriarchy says that sex finishes when he finishes do you know Mm. that's basically like that you know that's it he ejaculates the end and actually for me like it's like no sex doesn't finish until I've orgasmed as many times as I want to orgasm like yeah that's that's like that and actually like you know women can orgasm as many times as they want to orgasm like this is the thing and you know for me as a Christian it's something I do this all the time at Christian events whenever they they get me to go and talk about domestic abuse or about whatever they want to (laughs) talk about say, I, will and I always say I always bring up the clitoris like I mean literally like it's it's my thing I'm like right we need to talk about the clitoris you know because for me as a Christian I believe that God created women with an organ purely for sexual pleasure and I believe that the church has a responsibility to to own that and to say God made women for flipping awesome sex like he made yeah. this organ nobody else got men didn't get one just women and so, face, man. yeah so there you go so if we're going to talk about god's design for sexuality it involves women having loads of orgasms as many as they like and so so that's they, brilliant i love I do, that i say yeah. that every uh, nearly every christian event i go to and they all look a bit like this <laughs> they're <laughs> really shocked like no i didn't know that you were going to talk about the clitoris and i'm like the clitoris and then um and then um i kind of do i just like i encourage you to preach about this on sunday anyway and so and so i think for me like that's been really important both as a christian believing that there is a designedness to like that god made women's sexual organs and and men's sexual organs but we don't need to talk about (laughs) you know and it and that you know kind of the clitoris is this awesome like you know awesome part of women and so for me i think even before i've sort of dealt with the much more emotional and deep like trauma and all the kind that kind of stuff around sexuality it was it's been important to me for the majority of our marriage that like actually that's the the rules are like it doesn't finish till I'm finished because actually my my sexuality is likely to be more it's going to be able to light like, potentially last longer than yours you know in terms of in a sexual in- encounter yeah. potentially and so I suppose that's something that I guess I I think I just would encourage every woman to, <laughs> to take as a rule like it doesn't finish till you're finished you know and I think that is a brilliant note to finish on. yeah that's it <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me, Natalie. I feel like I could keep talking for another hour, but I know you have to go. (laughs) Hello. Um, You you have to go because you've written a book. Do you want to plug that? Yes. Well, it hasn't. It's not published till next March, but um, I've written. I'm writing a book about Christians and domestic abuse, and it's not actually just for Christians because we're kind of everywhere. So (laughs) it's one of those things. I know, scary. Like they walk among (laughs) you, and so actually, for me, it's about. It's not actually for kind of Christians who are being subjected to abuse. It's about um, for the helpers. So for vicars or um pastoral people or counsellors or whatever so that if they have somebody who's been subjected to abuse they can um support them um more effectively and and kind of engage with a lot of the christian culture stuff and some of the stuff we've been talking today around sex and neuro sexism and a lot of that stuff comes into it as well if you happen to have a friend who's a christian or you happen to know somebody who's a christian or you're a pastoral person or you work in any field where you might come across people who've been subjected to domestic abuse if somebody is a christian and they believe that um, God is saying to them you have to stay with your husband it doesn't matter how much you rationalize with them that they're wrong it's going to be much more helpful if you can engage with why do they think that and how you can yeah. kind of you talk to them about what does the bible actually say so that then so yeah so it's it's not going to be out till next march so if you follow you on twitter yes, god loves then, yeah, people then presumably you will yeah i also have like natweetly is my less christian account so i reckon <laughs> I, like there's christian there's people like amazing feminist friends and i always feel really 
really honoured that anybody who's a feminist doesn't like shun me as some like <laughs> patriarchal apologist or something by being a Christian. And so I, I have like my little if for for feminists who are like we can't bear the Christianness, then there's my tweetily one. Not which there is for, the, for the God chart. Yeah, that's it. So that's my other account. No tweetily. Nat nat tweetily like Natalie, but with tweet in the middle. Very so, witty. Yeah, okay, no, good. It. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you me. for having me. Oh. <laughs> 